Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb, and look who it is. Look who's back. It's none other than Joe McCormick. Oh, feels good to be back, man. <laughs> yeah, great to have you back. Uh, what is what is life like now? Uh, can you can you want to share anything with the, the viewers? You are you're now Joe McCormick, the dad. It's true. I've uh, I have entered daddom. Uh, I my wife and I had a baby girl back in October, uh, so I've been on parental leave for. I don't even know how long at this point. Uh, it just seems like, you know, a lifetime in the blink of an eye at once. Uh, and yeah, uh, so so our our daughter is uh, a wonderful little creature. She's uh, she's chirping and she's making goblin noises. It's beautiful. <laughs> but duty calls. So after my hiatus, here I am back on mic. Well, uh, again, congrats. Uh, I was so glad uh, uh, everything's working out so well. And, uh, and certainly, I, we've heard from a number of listeners who were very much cheering you on, but also were excited for you coming back. And, <laughs> and uh, one thing that Seth and I talked about, too, while you were out, we were like, well, some people might have started listening to the show just uh, five weeks ago. And if that is the case, uh, they have just been told about the coming of Joe. That uh, oh. that Joe is is coming. Joe shall return to us, and lo and behold, Joe has returned here on an episode of Weird House Cinema. I come covered in spit up and bearing uh, really boring stories. Have you, I don't know if you <laughs> noticed this about becoming a parent that uh, you know you, you spend all your day taking care of this child, and it's incredibly meaningful to you, but it really does not amount to much that you can tell anyone else. There aren't, there aren't really especially notable anecdotes or occurrences. It's just like, well, she looked at me. Or like, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, and I was holding her, and then she spit up, and then, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's the most wonderful thing ever, but it, it just doesn't really make for a good story. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of stuff like that. But 
but uh, yeah, I mean, but in a way, it's it's amazing you have such self awareness about it because uh, I I certainly remember just being amazed uh, by all these little things and then talking about them, but also being sort of a crazy person uh, in the new days of parenthood and therefore not really being able to tell or read the room about how much anyone wants to hear about all of this. Oh, um, no, I, I've already done that. I think now <laughs> is the, I've sort of reached a point of clarity of like, okay, I'm going to stop boring people telling stories about how she looked at me. <laughs> but I, I am excited to see where this takes future episodes of especially Stuff to Blow Your Mind core episodes, uh, because it does bring new insights. It makes you rethink uh, things about human nature, about certainly about learning and and oh, yeah. uh, development of the human being. It really turns a lot of our preconceived notions and expectations of uh, of humanity on its head in a in an often delightful way. Absolutely, you listeners, you may expect years to come of baby looked at you themed episodes. <laughs> well, I don't know how sleep deprived you are at the moment, Joe, uh, but are are you ready to discuss? Uh, a, a cinematic classic from 1954 titled Tobor the Great. Oh, am I? Boy, Tobor is just running through my veins right now. Tobor the Great, 1954 science fiction thrill ride, a film about an emotionally volatile psychic robot and the boy <laughs> who became his friend. Uh, so this movie got me thinking about how a lot of science fiction movies have a robot in them. But Tobor the Great comes from an era when the fact that there is a robot is plot enough in itself. And by the way, if you have any concerns that the characters in this movie will not say Tobor enough, let us put your fears to rest. You will hear talk of Tobor. You will see Tobor with your eyes. And by the end, you will believe in Tobor. Now, one of the interesting things about this is uh, when you think about classic 1950s robots, you often think about Robbie the Robot from 1956's uh, Forbidden Planet, uh, mm. which we, we were actually talking about uh, covering on Weird House at some point. Uh, but this, this predates Robbie the Robot. Um, so, uh, so, or at least it predates Robbie the Robot's appearance in Forbidden Planet. We have to remember that Robbie the Robot is essentially a robot actor. Uh, on Internet Movie Database, Robbie the Robot has his own profile, as if he is like a dog actor or a human actor. I gotta say, as much as I love Tobor, if I'm being serious, Tobor does not really achieve the heights of Robbie the Robot in terms of, of feeling and dramatic uh, intensity. At the same time, though, I feel like Tobor is a pretty good robot design. He has an interesting face that um, that that reads a, a little differently compared to some of the the cheaper big robot costumes of this time period and the decade to follow. I watched it with Rachel, and she kept reading Tobor's eyes as a light-up 1950s bullet bra. <laughs> it does kind of look like um, like the, the the front of a Buick or something uh, in, in ways. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot of interesting chrome in this film. There's a lot of gadgetry. I was really admiring the like, the use of, um, of of clear plastic or acrylic panels. There's a lot of uh, custom metalwork in this film. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say in general, when we were first looking into this film, I was noticing some people talking about it, kind of, kind of putting it down as if this this is just kind of a cheap affair. And yeah, this is a, this is not a, a huge budget film. This is this is not a, a classic of fifty sci fi, perhaps. But I feel like it's really well done. I feel like it holds up pretty yeah. well. And uh, uh, more thought went into it, and more work went into it than you might think would be required for a film of this caliber. Yes, it is by no means, it's not Forbidden Planet, but it is a rollicking good time. Yeah, and it's essentially a kid's movie. 
So, Rob, were you saying we I didn't even realize this was the case, but were you saying we have a tradition of doing robot movies around the holidays? It is December now, I guess. Essentially, I mean, this is only the third Christmas of Weird House Cinema. But uh, yeah, we've done we did robot jocks around Christmas. Oh, one yeah, year. yeah. We did the Super Inframan around Christmas one year, and I, I would say that sort of counts because any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from Inframan. Yes, great point. And we also kind of steer towards doing films that feel like something you'd find under the Christmas tree. Yes. And, you know, Rob, when I pitched this movie to you for my return episode of Weird House, I promised that there would be a very subtle holiday tie-in, seeing as we have entered December now. And while I'm sad to report that Tobor the Great is not in itself a Christmas robot, uh, before I found out about this movie, I already had an association with the word Tobor, which was... This is Tobor. Tobor, the telesonic robot. Batteries not included. He's under your control. With a click from the telesonic commander. To circle. To proceed forward. To circle. Or to pick up the support module and return. All on your command. Tobor is robot spelled backwards. Tobor, the telesonic robot from Shopper. Rob, did you know this commercial before? I love the eerie music in it. It, it sounds almost like it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit menacing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is really cool. I, uh, I certainly didn't watch this one as a kid. I would have. It's a little too old for me to have any genuine nostalgia for. Well, the original place I encountered this commercial was within one of the breaks in the copy I saw of the Star Wars Holiday Special. Oh uh, uh, yeah gotta love the commercials in whatever tape you've seen of the holiday special you know alongside the classics like the ladies garment workers union and their awesome theme song which i every time i watch the holiday special i'm i'm singing the garment workers song for days afterwards um uh, you, like it's even catchier than the starship song <laughs> but as far as i can tell tobor the telesonic robot is unrelated to tobor the great it's just evidence that uh you know spectacular minds think alike and at least two different creative geniuses across the past century noticed that tobor is robot spelled backwards that's gold <laughs> now i have another question uh before we start talking about cast or plot or anything which is why do you think it was called tobor the great it's a name that it, it invites uh, comparisons, like I've been walking around calling him Tobor Magnus or Tobor Augustus. The Great is an epithet often describing a military conqueror or a supposedly beloved autocratic despot. Uh, but at least within the runtime of the film, Tobor neither conquers territory nor become, becomes a king or emperor. So in what sense is he the Great? I mean, he's a great friend that you can rely That's true. on, I guess. Uh, but Tobor the Great Friend, that doesn't that makes it sound like it's a movie about a dog. Um, and maybe Tobor itself kind of sounds like a movie about a dog. Maybe Tobor the Great, I don't know, that could be a movie about a dog too. It could be a, like a, 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 some sort of a, a great breed of dog, right? Well, yeah, maybe it's recasting the idea of greatness. Like it's better to be a good friend than it is to be a military conqueror, I think. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's a strange choice because Tobor's range of action in this movie is actually rather limited. He mostly hangs out in one house and then goes to a different building at the end. Yeah. His movements are difficult to watch. 
<laughs> I kept expecting. There's a terrifying scene where Tobor the Great climbs a uh, spiral wrought iron staircase, oh, and yeah. um, I was legitimately on the edge of my seat because I'm like, "Oh, this poor actor is going to fall." I, like this, this looks very dangerous. Um, there are close-ups on his feet. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, the, the feet of this costume are also like weird stilts of some sort, so it looks extra, extra shaky. It was like a, it's like a movie with a close up where somebody's like eating off of a knife, and they're showing you close ups of their mouth. Yes, I, I, I can't wait to discuss uh, some of the action scenes with Tobar that occur later in the film. So uh, I guess we should do an elevator pitch, which is a doddering old professor creates an emotional telepathic robot in order to pilot dangerous space missions. This robot is named Tobor, and he's a friend to all children. But nefarious Soviet spies want to steal the secret of Tobor in order to unleash evil and destruction upon the human race. Will the Red Menace seize control of Tobor's mind, or will the love of a child keep Tobor on the path of righteousness? All right, let's hear that audio from the trailer. Tobor, the most amazing, the most fantastic creation of man's mind. Oh, he looks alive. For Tobor can live where no human can breathe, in the airless atmosphere of outer space. And the nation first to conquer space controls the world. Electronic scientists have designed a practical spaceship. Atomic power makes space travel possible, needing only the most valuable of all secret scientific achievements. Space-conquering giants that man can control. Tobor is alive. For even though much work remains before he's completed, he is already a sentient being, a necessary adjunct to the recording of all experiences our human space crews may later encounter. Since we cannot get in to see Nordstrom's secrets for ourselves, we must induce him to come out and tell them to us. They have no news of Professor Nordstrom or the boy. Neither has the Los Angeles Police Department nor the FBI. I take it you want the formulae for my extrasensory transmission method. Gramps, don't you tell him! Don't you do it! Please, don't you tell him! Go, Gramps, go! All right! You win. Tobor, bringing you chills you've never known before. Tobor, the most human outer space man ever seen on Earth. Be sure to see Tobor. All right, sounds exciting. Sounds pretty great. Uh, now, if you're wanting to watch this film as well, and you're wondering where you can get it, uh, basically the the main place to find it is, uh, is is if you want a physical media. There's a 2017 Kino Lorber Studio Classics Blu-ray release to the film. This is uh, remastered. You can also find various. Uh, uh, versions of it online. This is an older film. Um, there was one in particular we were looking at that had some uh, some uh, unofficial remastering and colorization of the film, which is normally not the sort of thing I'd go for. But I don't know with a film like this, uh, I feel like uh, it, it kind of benefits from that sort of treatment. I agree. I uh, I don't know who did this colorization, and I'm not going to say that it looks amazing, but it it's the right way to watch it. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's uncanny at times, which I like an uncanny sheen on a film like this. All right, well, let's start talking about who was involved in the creation of this picture. So let's start at the top. The director was Lee Sholem, 
also known as Lee Rollum Sholem for <laughs> cranking them out. Um, and he did, he did really crank them out. He directed various adventure shows and series in the 1950s, including episodes of, the, of Tarzan and Superman Adventures. He actually did 14 episodes of the early 1950s Adventures of Superman. He's credited as a director on the TV series Criswell Predicts. Oh! Um, yeah. <laughs> from uh, that connecting to Plan 9 from Outer Space. You, you yeah. may recall the uh, opening of that film is a Criswell Predicts segment where they had this TV psychic on talking about how future events such as these will affect you in the future. Yeah, so uh, uh, Sholem seems to have been involved in that. He did a lot of TV late in his career. Two other films of note include the 1957 movie Pharaoh's Curse, which, as you can imagine, is uh, some sort of a, an Egyptian curse film. But he also did 1967's Catalina Caper, which was an MST3K selection. Oh, I remember that one. Man, Tobor the Great would have made a fantastic Mystery Science Theater episode. I wish that had happened. Oh yeah, there's a there's a lot lot to riff on in this one. So, um, yeah, if anyone out there connected with MST or Rift Tracks is is listening by any chance, uh, put this one on your radar if it's not already. All right, the screenplay for this one, uh, screenplay credit goes to Philip McDonald, who lived 1901 through 1980, Scottish screenwriter and detective novelist, uh, probably best known for adapting the novel Rebecca for Alfred Hitchcock's uh, film adaptation in 1940. He also uh, was one of multiple uncredited adaptation writers on James Whale's The Bride of Frankenstein from 35. Uh, wow. So I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm not, not I'm not super uh, clear on exactly like what the uh, uh the chain of custody happens to be with that particular <laughs> screenplay. Uh-huh. He was also one of the screenwriters on 1945's The Body Snatcher, starring Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi, and he also wrote for Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Thriller. I have mixed feelings about the screenplay in this movie. I mean, on one hand, I would say it's, uh, I mean, it's very of its time and it doesn't mm -hmm. really like wow you in terms of character depth or anything, but it has a certain kind of, uh, kind of, uh, I, I don't know, sparky efficiency to it. Yeah, I mean, if, especially if I'm thinking about this film and comparing it to some of those various serials that came out back in the day, you know, the 1950s action-adventure serials, some of those are really dreadful and just yeah. a real bore to watch, even if they have fascinating elements to it. I feel like this movie, it moves along, and it, it has its techno-babble, as you might expect, but for the most part, it's techno-babble that you can nod your head to. <laughs> it yeah, <laughs> like it didn't feel as uh, as uh, as much of a skull scratcher as some uh, techno babble tends to be, and uh, uh, I don't know. It had it had kind of a sense of humor at times, so I, I feel like the script is um, is better than you might expect, and better than would be required. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it is. I mean, it does have lots of of unintentionally funny stuff in it, but it also it 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 works. It works on its own terms. Yeah. Uh, also, a story credit goes to Carl Dudley, who is also the executive producer, who lived 1910 through 1973, producer and director of a lot of documentary shorts, mostly. So maybe this is where we get the title. Maybe Dudley was like, hey, I've got an idea for a film. You spell robot backwards, you got Tobor. Let's call it Tobor yeah. the Great. Give me a script. I mean, I think this was also the era of people blowing your mind with a, a vampire named Alucard and, and stuff <laughs> like that. Yep, yep. All right, well, let's get into the human cast here. 
Our star uh, is the actor Charles Drake playing Dr. Ralph Harrison. One, one of our classic uh, 50s rectangles. Just, just yep. love him. Yeah, this is Dr. Harrison is tall. He's loud. He smokes and he can land a punch. So pretty much just your standard hero stuff for a picture like this. Mm-hmm. This is all that was required of a, of a, of a male hero uh, during this time period. So Charles Drake was active from the late 1930s to the early 1980s. His biggest films were probably 1945's Conflict, starring Humphrey Bogart, 1950's Harvey, starring Jimmy Stewart, and mm. 1968's The Swimmer, starring Burt Lancaster. Oh, and also 1967's The Valley of the Dolls. Oh, okay. He also popped up in an episode of the original Star Trek. Uh, I haven't seen the episode in question, I don't think, but you can find images of him in like a Star Trek captain's uniform, uh, you know, slouched. Uh, Shat style in uh, in the captain's chair, and uh, oh, and he was also in 1953's It Came from Outer Space. Now this one is weird because the main two characters, I would say, the two adult characters are uh, Harrison here, played by Drake, and uh, this other guy, Doctor Nordstrom or Professor Nordstrom, who we'll get to in a second. And I would think the normal dynamic you would do in this movie is you'd have Nordstrom as the egghead professor, and then you'd have a sort of square military man to be Mm -hmm. his, his younger uh, man of action counterpart. But instead of making a military man, they make him another scientist. And I don't know if he really reads as a scientist, the, his scientific credentials almost seem like an afterthought here. Yeah. Yeah. He reads far more like a military man. Uh, Again, he's, he's tall, loud, smokes, and he can land a punch. That's, and those are his main skill sets. We don't see him really doing much in the way of research. Okay. But we, we should get to the, the real egghead of the movie. Professor Nordstrom played by Taylor Holmes, uh, who lived 1878 to 1959. Taylor Holmes was an actor of stage and screen who appeared in a ton of Broadway plays had a film career that began in the silent era. And in the realm of talkies, uh, it looks like he did a bunch of crime and noir films, but also some romantic and screwball comedies. The main titles that jumped out at me from uh, his sound era list were, uh, let's see, he was in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in 1953, which is a classic Howard Hawks comedy starring Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. He also did some small voice roles in a couple of Disney animated films of the 50s, including Lady and the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty. He was also in a film noir I've never seen called Quicksand, but it caught my eye because of the uh, the synopsis. It apparently stars Mickey Rooney as an innocent auto mechanic who falls for a femme fatale played by uh, Gene Cagney, and as a result, he must turn to a life of crime, and he ends up embroiled in a blackmail scheme with Peter Lorre, who plays oh. a penny arcade proprietor named Dramoshag. And Taylor Holmes is in there somewhere. I think he plays a lawyer. Oh, well, this sounds great. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a Mickey Rooney lover, but I am a Peter Lorre lover. And seeing <laughs> Mickey Rooney at, turn to a life of crime does sound hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Um, I, would, I was looking into this actor a little bit. I think this may be his only performance in a sci-fi or a horror film. It's possibly I'm, I'm missing something there. But yeah, it seems like he's... he's yeah, more of the the comedy, comedy noir sort of a uh, area, uh, but yeah, he plays uh, Grandpa Nordstrom in this, uh, Grandpa the scientist, and he's pretty delightful. It's the kind of kind of role that I think could otherwise be very dry and uh, uninteresting, but uh, he gives a little pep to old Grandpa here. 
Well, he brings a, a very stagey energy to the role. You like you can tell this is a guy who did not begin on screen but began mm-hmm. on stage. So he like projects and he yes. does a very uh he does a, a a very stagey kind of voice. And th- this relates actually to a second unexpected holiday tie-in for me personally with Tobor the Great. So the whole time I was watching this movie, I kept thinking that the actor playing Professor Nordstrom seemed oddly familiar, particularly his voice, which is strange in a way that I associate with some actors who began on stage or in silent film and made the transition to talkies later in their career. And I was thinking, where did I recognize him from? And beyond that, why am I weirdly associating Taylor Holmes' voice with Vincent Price, even though he sounds nothing like Vincent Mm. Price? Well, the answer came to me when, echoing through my mind, I began to hear Professor Nordstrom saying, Christmas, bah, humbug! <laughs> and bingo, I give you the 1949 made-for-TV Charles Dickens adaptation, The Christmas Carol. Yes, you heard me right. Not A Christmas Carol, like the novel is called, but The Christmas Carol, for some reason, sponsored by the Magnavox Company. Uh, It stars Taylor Holmes in a world historically hammy performance as Ebenezer Scrooge. They also spell Ebenezer wrong in this version with two E's, unlike the novel. And it has Vincent Price as the narrator. So it like opens on Vincent Price sitting on a couch reading a book. And he's like, everyone loves Charles Dickens. And then starts to tell the story. And uh, I, I don't know if we maybe we can get a little sample of what Taylor Holmes as Scrooge sounds like. Humbug. What's Christmas to you but a time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer? Every idiot that goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding. That's pretty great, and you're 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 missing the the visual here of him uh, of, of, in some of these scenes, like you know, squirming on his uh, his his lounge chair as he uh, witnesses Marley's ghost before him. Yes, yeah, it's good. <laughs> This adaptation, by the way, is less than 30 minutes long, so they really <laughs> pack the story oh, in. Oh, wow. It, it does not take – maybe we should feature this for like a, a holiday special on Weird House or something. That's great. I mean, that may be beating out uh, Disney Christmas Carol, which I've long admired for nicely compressing a Christmas Carol into a, a, a short uh, uh, show that can be watched in one setting. I mean, I, I got to say, I, I'm a sucker for a Christmas Carol. I love it. I It's a classic. It it, it still gets me. Uh, I love Muppet Christmas Carol. You know, I, I don't care if you judge me for that. I'm, I'm, I'm all on board. But this version is, uh, it's not the best, but it is worth seeing for its own charms. <laughs> but anyway, this Ebenezer Scrooge here is also our professor for the film. He is the creator of Tobor. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. 
Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now we also have the character of Janice Roberts, played by Karen Booth, who lived 1916 through 2003, an American actor who also appeared in 1947's The Unfinished Dance, as well as various action, western, and noir films of the day. How, how would you describe this character? She's, she's there. She asks questions uh, and all. Yeah, as with a lot of 1950s sci-fi movies, uh, the, the female characters kind of get a raw deal. And ooh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Janice Roberts plays Professor Nordstrom's daughter, who is uh, the beautiful mother of our annoying child character, Gadge, who we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but she, uh, I don't know. I mean, she, she gets introduced and she, she mostly kind of asks questions. She's, she's like, oh, you know, oh, could Tobor hurt someone? Or uh, <laughs> she's like, you know, why would anyone want to steal the secret of Tobor? Or uh, at one point, uh, 
the child gets invited to a show at a science museum, I think, and he can bring anybody with him. And it's, and he's like, well, I would take you mom, but you probably wouldn't understand it. And she's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. There's (laughs) a lot of stuff uh, like that. Or, or she's asking like, well, how do the security systems at grandpa's house work or something like that? Like she asks a lot of questions where you would think this would have come up at some point in the past. Yeah. Um, So yeah, she doesn't have a tremendous amount of agency in this film. She does have a tremendous scene of shaking hands with Tobor, which oh, is yes. especially funny when you see what Tobor's hands look like. Oh, yeah. I'm glad she wasn't mangled by this. <laughs> All right. Well, we, meant, we mentioned that she was the, she's the mother of Gadge. Gadge yes. is the nickname. Gadge is in Gadget, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. The nickname for the character, Brian Roberts. Brian Roberts is played by Billy Chapin who lived 1943 through 2016. Child actor, probably best known for his role as young John Harper in the 1955 thriller The Night of the Hunter, starring Robert Mitchum. Oh, man, what a classic. I love yeah. Night of the Hunter. That is that is a, a, a like the pinnacle of cinematic menace. Robert yeah. Mitchum in that movie is evil incarnate. Love it. Yeah. yeah, even if you haven't seen the film in full, there's a very good chance you've seen stills or clips with Robert Mitchum's uh, villainous character kind of stalking uh, and intimidating this uh, these two children, this young boy and this younger girl. And yeah, that's that's Billy. That's our, that's our actor. He's most well known for that, but then we also have Tobor. Uh, I think I recall Billy Chapin being good in Night of the Hunter, so I, I think uh, he... I'm going to say, I think he's very annoying in Tobor, but I think it's not his fault. I mean, that, that's how the character's written. He's just saying, he's throwing out G. Willikers all, all oh, yeah. over the place. Yeah, yeah. It, he was uh, one of three child actors. His siblings were child actors as well. Uh, Michael and also Lauren, Lauren of Father Knows Best. Um, yeah, they, they, they all were actors. Billy did a lot of TV work, some film work and stage work up into the late 1950s including Dragnet and Leave it to Beaver. And he apparently started acting as a toddler and appeared on Broadway as a toddler. So uh, pretty impressive. Wow. All right. We, uh, we do have our villains in this film. And our villains mm. are, of course, uh, uh, do they ever actually say they're Soviets or Russians? or is just No, a- I don't think they ever say Russian or Soviet, but it's, that's obviously implied. It's clearly what they're going. It's the 50s, and they have Russian-sounding accents, or at least Eastern European-sounding accents, and they, uh, they're they implied to represent a, quote, different form of government and so mm-hmm. forth. Uh, when you look at films from, from this time period especially, if you have a, an actor who either is of uh, Eastern European um, origins, or can can uh, can can use the such an accent. Inevitably, they're going to be playing villains. They're playing uh, uh, some sort of a, a menace or a threat, uh, with, with some rare exceptions here and there. But uh, yes, our villain here is the man with rimless glasses. I don't think he has any other name. That's how he's credited. Played mm. by the actor Stephen Gary, who lived 1904 through 1973. Uh, this is our, our lead enemy agent who's trying to get his hands on some Tobor technology. Um, it, it, I, th- I thought this was a very fun performance. Uh, Gary oh, was yeah. born in Austria-Hungary, though his birth city, Uzhorod, um, is now part of Ukraine. Um, mm. But uh, he was a prolific actor who played a lot of European villains, though sometimes he played more of a comic role. He did, he did a number of comic roles as well. Uh, he appeared in All About Eve, Gentlemen Prefer 
Bonds, Spellbound, as well as 1943's Phantom of the Opera, just to name a few. And to a much lesser extent, he also appears in Jesse James Meets Frankenstein's Daughter from 1966. <laughs> he also starred in the noir film So Dark the Night from 1946, which I haven't seen, but uh, apparently he's the lead in that. So like I say, oh. there are some exceptions here and there. Um, uh, uh, for, for actors of uh, uh, like Gary. So I'm kind of interested. After seeing him in this, which is surely not the ultimate showcase of his skills, I'm very yeah. interested to see his uh, some of his other work. I mean, his performance in this is, mo- for most of the film, is limited to like sneaking around in the background, kind of looking sketchy and, and peering over things at people. Uh, but then at the end, when he when he has to be truly menacing, like he he captures some hostages, he, he he's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a little afraid of him. He reminded. It, I mean, this is I'm re- being reminded in the wrong direction here. But uh, while the uh, the villainous. Uh, um, uh, SS agent in Rages of the Lost Ark, yes, uh, played by yes. Ronald Lacey. Lo- for the most part, we tend to associate that character as being a Peter Lorre esque character. But uh-huh. I was reminded of, uh, of of Ron Lacey's performance watching Stephen Gary in this film. Absolutely, me too. Same thing. It's similar glasses and similar mm-hmm. mannerisms. Yeah. Now, um, uh, there's another actor worth mentioning here, and that's uh, Peter Brocco, who lived 1903 through 1992. And he plays, this is uncredited, but he plays Dr. Gustav, who is the, the doctor that's hanging out with the enemy agent. So he's like a foreign scientist who can't wait to get his hands on this advanced American robot technology. Yeah, he's there to, I think, uh, do due diligence on the ground. They're there to try to steal the secrets of Tobor, and he is there to check and make sure that they're getting the secrets of Tobor correct. Yeah. And uh, Bracco here is, is interesting because he's, he has a very distinctive look. Um, character actor, very gaunt-looking face. Mm-hmm. So you can easily imagine he's the sort of guy that, that maybe got picked out of the lineup uh, to get thrown into films and bit parts here and there, but ultimately ends up popping up in quite a few films. He was very active from the early 1930s through the early 1990s. Did a lot of smaller roles in TV work, including uh, spots in the original Twilight Zone, the original Outer Limits, Thriller, Star Trek, Night Gallery, and more. But he also pops up in some pretty well-known films. He plays uh, a character in 1960's Spartacus. He's in 71's Johnny Got His Gun. He's in 73's Papillon. And he has a uh, fairly memorable performance in 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Is he a guy who like never talked or like only said one thing or something? Yeah, I believe so. I think he may be in a wheelchair. He's an older guy by that, that, that point. Yeah, he has, uh-huh. has a beard, but you can still see the, the gaunt face. He always had this kind of gaunt, kind of skeletal appearance that, again, uh, a great touch for a character actor to have because whether it's a bigger part or a smaller part, uh, you're liable to wind up on screen. Mm-hmm. Finally, the music on this one, there's not much to say about the music here, but it is by Howard Jackson, who lived 1900 through 1966, a composer credited with some 477 works on IMDb, including 1936's Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Okay. All right, well, let's get into the plot of Tobor the Great. Begins with some nice Flash Gordon-style titles. Uh, You know, it's like, uh, I don't know what you call this thing, where it looks like paintbrush strokes. It's got the little jagged edges. Yeah, like it's painted on the the side of a circus tent. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Roadside attraction, that's what I would call it. But then when you go into a movie, okay, it's 1954. How are you going to start this thrill ride? We got to get lectured while being shown a bunch of stock footage. 
Oh, yeah. Robust stock footage intro in this one. Lots of shots of science and war going on. Uh, So it begins, it says, this is a story of the future, but not the very distant future. And then it shows a nuclear explosion. (laughs) They were really always really quick to bust out an, an atomic explosion in films like this. Yeah, um, so it is a story that might have taken place the day after tomorrow. Like all stories of the future, however, its beginnings lie far back in the past. Uh, And then it shows some clouds that look like they are ready to start speaking to Moses. It's just Mm -hmm. shafts of light punching through the cloud tops. Then the narration goes on. As far back as the first man on earth to gaze at the stars and wonder someday how he might travel to them. Travel through space. And then, of course, we see space. I love Mm -hmm. that. Uh, Just some stars on a black background. So it would seem immediately like this is going to be a movie that's taking place in space. But no. Back to a shot of the earth ball. You see like earth suspended in the void. And then uh, the, the narration goes on. In the years after the Second World War, two basic patterns began to influence the growing science of space travel. Rockets, or guided missiles, grew larger and larger, and then we see a rocket take off, and then atomic power plants grew smaller and smaller. And here we are treated to some obvious stock footage of a of a submarine being launched. I guess this is a, supposed to be a nuclear submarine being launched like down a jetty into the water. You can see in the foreground, there's a, there's a general dynamics plaque, but Mm -hmm. I I wonder what this, what event this is actually from. Yeah. This, um, I feel like you shouldn't, you shouldn't depend on this film, uh, even in the 1950s to learn about like the history of technology in the 20th century, (laughs) but you might accidentally learn something if you were watching this, I don't know, at the theater back in the day as a child, uh, Uh none of this feels completely off the ball. Sure. So they're saying, yeah, atomic power plants are getting smaller and smaller, compact enough to be contained in a submarine and finally in a rocket ship. Immediately, by special order of the president, a new agency was formed, the CIFC, Civil Interplanetary Flight Commission. So with almost unlimited funds voted by Congress and then what are you going to get? Of course, a shot of the Capitol building. Yeah, Mm -hmm. why not? This commission began its task, research in new fissionable materials, more research in non-fissionable metallic alloys to make rocket tubes that would not be melted like wax by their own atomic blasts. Sometimes mishaps occurred. Men paid for them with their lives. And then we see a rocket crash. But the work went on. Experiments in celestial navigation, astrophysics, aerodynamics, until finally only one obstacle remained. That, it turned out, was the oldest obstacle in the history of mankind. The human factor. (laughs) The human factor. Uh, So we begin the action of the film concentrating on the human factor. What's so bad about the human factor? Well... We're observing a bunch of scientists performing a centrifuge test on a guy in a flight suit, subjecting him to to G-forces that make his face into a profound deputy droopy, uh, while various cold-hearted pipe-smoking scientists look on. And this this experiment continues in its cruelty until our hero, Dr. Ralph Harrison, this is Charles Drake, he barges into the room and he orders the experiment halted at once. And by the way, I thought this was interesting choice the guy they have picked out to be the astronaut in the 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 g-forces test here is not like a young test pilot in peak physical condition i'd say he looks like a roughly 58 year old mailman 
Yeah, he he reminds me very strongly of my grandfather. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my childhood memories of my grandfather does not look like this guy needs to be in a centrifuge, and also is probably not best the best candidate for making rash decisions about whether humans should be involved in space travel at all. Yeah. <laughs> At, at the same time, though, this whole thing about the human factor—I uh, mean, this is kind of insightful—and this is something we've come, yeah, uh, we've come back to on the show, but on unsuitable your mind before discussing space travel—is that, yeah, in a lot of cases, you wind up with the question: Is this worth trying to send a human being uh, um, out into the void uh, with? You know, our bodies are have evolved to thrive not only on Earth but within a very specific layer of the Earth's. Uh, surface within a very specific layer of the Earth's atmosphere, and um, sometimes it just makes more sense to send something that is not human out there to do our work amid the stars. And this is sort of one of the discoveries of the movie. Like we haven't gotten there yet. At the at the outset, it's basically like, well, you're either going to have humans going into space, or you're not going to explore space at all. Yeah. Uh, now Harrison uh, comes. So after he stops the experiment, he gets up in the face of these these white lab coats. Uh, and he says, under other forms of government, men are killed or crippled every day in experiments like this. Well, I won't stand by and see manslaughter become policy here. And then this guy with a pipe hanging out his mouth says, I resent that. These men are volunteers. They know what they signed up for. Uh, so begins the philosophical conflict. And it it seems the situation of this film is that the consensus of scientists is that we must liquefy all astronauts in the name of progress. And Dr. Harrison challenges the status quo with a bold new agenda, uh, proclaiming that astronauts should not be slaughtered. But in so doing, he, he fiercely butts heads with a bunch of sadistic pipe guys. And, and that's where we are when the movie begins. So Dr. Harrison tries to run his gripe up the chain. He tries to go to the commissioner of the agency and he's like, I won't stand by while we do these cruel experiments and, and, and punish men's bodies in this way. Uh, so he's going to tender his resignation. But while he is doing that, he is overheard by a shadowy figure behind a frosted glass doorway. And later, this guy who's listening in comes to find Harrison at his home. And when he does, he is dressed like the judge from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> I was really, uh, this was a scene too, or very early in the film where I was kind of taken aback by just how old most of the actors I was seeing on screen were. Cause not only yeah. the, the test pilot guy, but yeah, the, uh, the, the guy he goes to the, the, the boss is pretty old looking. And then here comes grandpa who of course is, is rather aged himself. Well, it's true. Yeah. But I guess, you know, the, the fifties were, were, were hard on the body. Um, so <laughs> some of these people may look older than they actually were. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so the, he's visited by Professor uh, Nordstrom here, who introduces himself, and it turns out they share a common dissident belief that astronauts should not be killed. And Nordstrom says, you know, before we prepare men for the conditions in extraterrestrial space, we've got to know what those conditions are. No, not guess. And Harrison agrees, but unfortunately, there's just no way to do it, right? In order to find out what the conditions in space are, you got to send human pilots up there in spacecraft to check. And Nordstrom is like, nope, I have a better solution. Join me and we can work on this together. So it seems like they're going to team up. They're, they're going to figure out how to do it. And after this, we see a scene in what appears to be an airport restaurant, but it is incredibly swanky and spacious. I, I've never oh, yeah. seen an airport restaurant like this. <laughs> yeah, not like this. So this is a different age of air travel. 
this is where but this looks yeah that's the kind of place where you'd go to get your um your steak dinner your half a dozen oysters and a few martinis before boarding your uh rickety flight yeah but but al- already this whole th- this whole business with the uh, explaining why we need to have humanoid robots i feel like i've got to i've got to go back to the screenwriter on this one i got to go back to uh uh, to Philip McDonald, because this really feels like the producer Dudley coming and saying, "All right, I, just, I need a picture in which we have a robot befriending a child," um, and he comes up with a, a rather um, uh, entertaining and almost th- really thought-provoking way of getting there, instead of just having something like traditionally stupid and action serial happening, like, "Oh, Grandpa's a just Grandpa's a scientist, and oh, he happens to have a robot." Well, no, why does he have a robot? Uh, this film it bothers to answer those questions. Yeah, he could have invented him as a robot butler. Yeah, like a lot, that would be more in keeping with uh, with certainly the action serial motif. Like in the Phantom Creeps, for example, starring Bella Lugosi, the mad scientist in that has an evil humanoid robot. But just because it seems like just because like that's just what you do if you're a, a sci-fi yeah. mad scientist, you're going to have a, a various gadgets laying around the house, including the humanoid robot. Yeah, why not? But instead, this addresses a real issue. And of course, you know, almost all of our space missions now are, in fact, uh, uncrewed. They are performed by robots, though, in a different way than this movie imagines. This movie imagines uh, spacecraft with like cockpits that are piloted by humans and have steering wheels, basically. And you would get a humanoid robot to sit in the cockpit and, and guide the spacecraft instead of just the spacecraft itself being a robot. Yeah, though you could imagine an update of this where if you had something that was, I guess, less like a metallic human and more like, essentially more like some sort of a cloned bio-android sort of a situation where you could have something that could be in the place of a human space traveler, not only to handle the equipment, but also to test like how dangerous the environment is to the human body or something. Yeah, and in a way, I think that's sort of what they're getting at. I mean, it sounds like the purpose of Tobor, I mean, we haven't even gotten to this reveal in the Mm -hmm. plot yet. We're getting ahead of the plot. But the purpose of Tobor, I think, is supposed to be to fly missions to test what space is like and figure out what the hazards are so that we can know that in advance of sending humans. Right. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. But okay, we, we got to get back into the do things more in order here. Okay, so Nordstrom and Harrison, they're sitting in the swanky airport restaurant. They're discussing their plans. And the big thing is that this project is top secret. <laughs> Nobody can know about it until it is perfected. Uh, <laughs> uh, meanwhile, we've got a sketchy looking guy in a fedora and rimless glasses watching on from the table behind them. <laughs> and then they are joined at their table by Gilligan, the science editor of trans global news services. And I appreciate that this film takes a firm and consistent stand against the free press. <laughs> The, the journalists in this movie are represented as nasty, opportunistic, and disloyal to their country. Just just rats to the core. Mm -hmm. And Harrison, uh, when Gilligan sits down to talk to them, you know, he wants the scoop, of course. He's like, what have you been working on? And Harrison just reams Gilligan because journalists reported publicly on secret atomic tests and things like that. Uh, and so I think it's supposed to be a great relief later when we see a journalist get smacked by Tobor during yep. a demonstration. Uh, but, but Gilligan, he, he's just like, Hey, you're in the business of smashing atoms. I'm in the business of selling newspapers. If uncle Sam doesn't know how to keep his secrets, that's his own tough luck. And, and Harrison to, to, to be, to be clear, uncle Sam here in the, the, in the, the form of these two characters are discussing top secret materials at just a random airport restaurant yes, within in earshot of enemy agents <laughs> and uh, and the press, which uh, you know is 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 one of the more realistic things about this film, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, so, but Harrison, of course, doesn't like him at all. He's like mm. uh, he's like I guess it doesn't matter how much aid and comfort you give our enemies or how many of our side get killed. 
so uh, I think we get some pretty firmly conservative politics yeah. going on in, in this film. It is not happy about uh, journalists reporting on, on, on top secret research. But anyway, so Gilligan gets invited to a demonstration of uh, Nord- Nordstrom's new project, uh, of course, along with all the other science journalists, which he's not happy about. He's like, I wanted an exclusive. Mm-hmm. And Nordstrom's like, nope, we're going to show you all at the same time. Uh, and meanwhile, the man in rimless glasses is looking on with keen interest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stephen Gary here. Uh, so good. This is this is the the first scene where I'm like, oh man, this is this is totally the this is totally the the, the bad guy from Raiders. This is yeah, totally give me that intrigue. Mm-hmm. All right, so then we move on to the Nordstrom estate, where frankly, most of the rest of the movie will take place. Uh, it's like a compound that's surrounded by an electric fence, uh, and it's got all these gadgets for defense that we see in action later. Uh, but when everybody's coming in there, Harrison arrives and professor grandpa here introduces Dr. Harrison to his daughter, Janice, who he says runs this household with a rod of iron, but (laughs) it doesn't seem like it. When do we see her running anything with a rod of iron? Yeah. She's very polite. Very, very pleasant. Uh, it's almost like, and then we see them, you know, Harrison and Janice standing together in a frame and while it's basically like grandpa's like, all right, now you two go fall in love. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, that never happens as I recall in the film, but it, it seems like it's, it's almost like you have to at least imply it. Right. Like how else would you shoot this scene unless you were going to imply that they were falling in love with each other? Why would yeah. you have a, have a male character and a female character on the screen at the same time? Otherwise. Yeah. Uh, but then we also meet the grandson, uh, Brian, AKA Gadge, who is a sort of Wesley Crusher esque boy genius who knows mm-hmm. everything about everything. He's just a, a, a G whiz G willikers with science and machines. Yep. Oh, and they also have, I think a German Butler named Carl and Carl is a real Debbie downer. Yeah. Uh, when, when Carl meets Harrison, he's talking about gadget. He goes, the boy is an imp of Satan, <laughs> but what a brain <laughs> he'll be greater than his grandfather. <laughs> Uh, but inside we see Gadge's genius. He he shows off by demonstrating that he has figured out how to open Professor Nordstrom's Batcave, which is a very involved process that goes on way too long, involving a bookcase and like touching different parts of it. Yeah, yeah. Though th- they did put in a lot of work to create something that was a little different than the standard uh, tip a book, open a secret chamber sort of scenario. Yeah, yeah. Instead, it's like you got three different things and you got to do them in different orders and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Gadge is congratulated on his his cleverness for opening up the uh, laboratory, but he is not allowed to come down and see it. And he honors that. He's a good boy in that he will not just go down the strange spiral staircase to Grandpa's dungeon. But as we find out, he's not above spying on Grandpa's dungeon. <laughs> Right, with a listening device that yeah. he like ropes through the floor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then for some reason, there's a scene where Gadge talks to a grandfather clock. Like they've got an Alexa, basically. The, yeah, the that, that was interesting. Yeah, it's basically yeah. an Alexa sort of situation. He like he, The clock still has a clock face, so he could look at it and it would tell him what time it is. But instead he says like, clock, tell me what time it is. And it replies with an automated voice, which sounds like Taylor Holmes, by the way. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. it is one thirty. This is great. I mean, this is, this is prophetic. This is exactly where we are now. So anyway, we're heading up to the big demonstration, the big reveal. What is it Professor Nordstrom has been working on? By the way, so we've been talking about Tobor, but the movie has given no hint of Tobor or robots at all so far. Mm-hmm. 
so uh, cars start arriving. The journalists are showing up to see this demonstration at Nordstrom's compound. And uh, Carl stands guard at the gate with a shotgun. Yeah. Uh, seems kind of extreme. Uh, and he does a kind of papers, please routine for all the approaching vehicles. And then we see one of the vehicles. Hey, wait a second. That's not a journalist. That's that creepy guy from the airport with the rimless glasses. <laughs> yep. And he's smoking a pipe. And now here I want to do to do a brief pipe digression. I think it's interesting that several characters in this movie smoke pipes and they are all villains of one sort or another. You've got the creepy communist spy, and then you've got the cold-hearted scientist from earlier who wanted to murder the mailman with G-forces. So is there a reason for this? Was pipe smoking associated with cold-hearted treachery in 1954? I don't know. I mean, nowadays I think of pipe smoking, I think of like Sherlock Holmes or something. Yeah. Um, but at the time, yeah, you, you think back on our various heroes, a lot of the times they're, they're smoking, certainly, but they're smoking cigarettes. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess, and maybe I guess you have characters smoking cigars as well. But yeah, it would be interesting to read like a breakdown of like the, the cinematic language of tobacco choices uh, in 1950s cinema. Like, yeah, because there does seem to be um, a division here. You got your pipe smokers, your, your, your cigarette smokers, and I guess that's all we really see. We don't see anybody trooping around with cigars or a hookah or anything. Yeah, it almost seems like, you know, the 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 cigarettes are uh, I got this cigarette habit when I was in the war and you yeah. know, that's like a that's like an honorable manly kind of way to smoke, but the pipe smokers are these kind of untrustworthy intellectuals. Mm, I think that may be it. There's an intellectual air to it, which <laughs> despite our our hero being a scientist, uh, he has more of that uh, that machismo to him, more of that soldier mentality. So it makes sense that he's just uh, he's smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Well, anyway, so we move on to the demonstration where we're down in Nordstrom's secret lair and all the journalists are gathered in attendance. Again, just a dreadful flock of rectangular men in gray suits, including Gilligan, the unpatriotic journalist from earlier uh, and the suspicious man in glasses. They're all down here. And Nordstrom explains that they are in a wine cellar, but it looks more like one of the sets from Prince Prospero's castle in the mask of the red death. It's like a giant room with stonework walls and 20 foot high ceilings. Yeah. Like it was maybe once an actual dungeon and then it (laughs) was repurposed into a wine cellar and then repurposed into a, a secret laboratory. That was not secret anymore because you just invited the free press and some enemy agents there. But I guess, I guess Gadge already uh, kind of spoiled it for everyone, so why not? Yeah, so anyway, they say it's chosen because it is ideal for security and to protect our delicate equipment from surface vibrations. Uh, And it's also got a a stage and a bunch of light-up gizmos. And Nordstrom's presentation restates the problem we've become acquainted with already. So we need to send spaceships into space, but space may well kill the pilots. But in order for us to find out how space will kill the pilots, we've got to send pilots up there in spaceships. So it's a catch-22. So is there any way we can beat this? Well, Nordstrom says uh, he's going to prove all the critics wrong. And in order to do so, he unveils a large electronic device with a pistol grip. And he presses a button on the on this device to unveil his creation, and out of a gigantic tube comes what is this? Why why it's like a man with arms and legs and a head, but it's made of metal. It's a mechanical man. A mechanical man with a, an ornate head so large that he will surely topple over. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tobor is top heavy. I gotta say. Mm. 
Yeah, way too top heavy for a, a bipedal machine. It seems like he should be. They should have played it more like a gorilla suit. But then again, they would just the, the actor would fall over. The the spy, by the way, the creep in the glasses is positively drooling while he watches. He's like biting his <laughs> pipe, and and it, again, this guy should have been played by Peter Lorre. I mean, I like the guy they have, but that would have pushed it over the edge. Oh well, it would have pushed the budget over the edge. I bet they couldn't get yeah. Lorre at this time. Uh, so anyway, Nordstrom says, well, gentlemen, meet Tobor. Then he explains that Tobor is robot spelled backwards. Yeah, but it's but it's a cheeky way of doing it. He's he's not yeah. he's a little like, yeah, I know this is lame, but hey, it's it's robot spelled backwards, which again, it really feels like the screenwriter making his uh, his EP's idea work in the film. Yes. Yeah, the boss said it's got to be called Tobor. So this is it's he like lampshades the idea that he <laughs> named it Tobor. Yeah. By the way, the uh, remote control we get to. I, I just I love this is a film that loves its gadgets, and I love how the the cool little like gun remote control for Tobor itself is contained within like a clear like acrylic or plastic uh, bread box. And then that yes. bread box on a pedestal has its own specifically tailored dust cover that goes over it when it's not Yes, used. They spared no expense. Yeah. So Gilligan, the journalist, is like, hey, is this just another movie Frankenstein? That's what he says. And Nordstrom says, no. And in fact, Tobor is not even a robot. It, he's an, quote, electronic simulacrum of a man. And I was thinking, how does that make it not a robot? Doesn't that just describe a particular type of robot? Mm, uh, again, this feels maybe like the screenwriter rebelling a little, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, if we go by Baudrillard's definition of, of simulacrum, it would be a copy or imitation of a thing that no longer exists or never existed in the first place. So yeah, oh, wow. chew on that. Mm. Maybe Tobor is designed to stand in for man once man no longer exists. Mm, I like it. I like it. Okay, but here's the the rundown on Tobor. So he's an electronic simulacrum of a man who will be able to safely pilot ships into outer space to document the spine-tingling cosmic hazards that dwell there without putting a human being at risk. And he is currently controlled by this little ray gun device with the pistol grip. But that's only a temporary measure. The range will not be good enough with this thing to control him once he goes to space. Eventually, Tobor is going to be controlled entirely by means of a system with longer range, which is ESP. <laughs> that's right. You narrow-minded journalists might not even believe in psychic powers, telepathy, extrasensory perception. But not only are they real, they are the protocol for interfacing with my new mechanical Superman. Take that. I <laughs> I did not know. I was not prepared for the psychic robot part. No, especially after they initially whipped out the control mechanism. You're just imagining yeah. just sort of your typical kind of clunky commanding the robot with buttons and maybe some vocal commands. But no, this machine will be powered, well, not powered, but controlled by the human brain. You think it and Tobor does it. In fact, they say that Tobor is already a sentient being. They say he can feel emotions and he will react by psychically sensing the emotions of others. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a hilarious couple of demonstrations they do of this. The first one is they call Janice in to demonstrate Tobor's powers. 
uh, basically the professor is like, I command you to love Tobor. <laughs> and, she, uh, you know, she, they're like, approach Tobor and feel friendliness to him. Feel it in your heart. And she says, I'll try. Uh, but what do you know? She does seem to start falling for Tobor. Like she comes up, she feels the friendliness and she says, why he does seem almost kind, doesn't he? And we get a close up of Tobor's face lighting up with his, his like conical, uh, bright light, you know, high beam eyes. And then he's got a mouth. Is his mouth supposed to look kind of smiley? It's like a V shaped in, in an upturned way. Um, I don't know. I got more of a skull uh, out of <laughs> looking at his face, but there, <laughs> there is an abstraction to it for sure. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, of which, uh, the, the eyes glow and I forget the, the quote, but there's even a little bit of techno babble in there where the screenwriter it basically offhandedly explains why the eyes glow, uh, yes. which I thought was a nice touch. Like he really did everything he could to make this work, even though the, 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 the main o- intended audience seems to be children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Tobor telepathically senses uh, Janice's feelings, uh, the feelings of fake friendship that she has just conjured up and mm-hmm. reacts by shaking hands with her, except Tobor does not have a hand so much as a plate with three wiggling steel tipped meat spikes on it. Yeah. So he, he shakes her hand with his meat spikes. Yeah. And luckily she is not crushed. Yes. Uh, and then we let's do another experiment. So the journalists are still skeptical. I think Gilligan's like, Hey, could you do that with somebody who's not, you know, a member of your family? This could be a, a prearranged trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so professor grandpa is like, Hey Gilligan, do you suppose you could contrive to feel enmity towards Tobor? <laughs> and Gilligan can absolutely contrive this. He's an expert at contriving. So, uh, so for good measure, the professor has the journalist grab a fire ax and, and walk around behind Tobor's back. And then he tells him, you know, really get those enmity juices flowing, feel hatred for Tobor. And I guess he's just, he gets so into the part that the journalist starts to like rear back with the ax, almost like he's going to hit Tobor, but Tobor, uh, uh-uh, he lays the smack down, lays down the law with a righteous backhand and knocks the journalist on his, uh, well, I was going to say on his butt, but no, he kind of knocks him over forward. Yeah, and he he seems more like his ego is bruised by this. He's not hurt. If this were RoboCop, things would have gone a, lo- <laughs> a little bit yeah. differently. But uh, but now he's he's mostly just put in his place, and everyone kind of snickers at the uh, at the journalist who uh, who now has to to sit down and kind of uh, maybe rub his uh, his back a little bit. Oh my God, I did not realize it, but you're right. This is the precedent for the Ed 209 scene in the boardroom. It's like, point the gun at Tobor. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a glitch. (laughs) I'm very disappointed in you, Dick. Yeah, no one has to run out in the scene and and yell for them to behave yourselves. Yeah. Uh, Uh, so anyway, uh, Nordstrom explains that Tobor feels all human emotions. So he's got friendliness, but then they specify he also feels fear and anger and will act out of self-preservation instinct. So good design that exactly what you want in a robot. Yeah. I, I hope this is what they're working on in those, you know, the, the Google labs right now or whatever is making robots feel genuine anger. Well, you know, coming back to the basic principle behind Tobor is if you if you are sending a simulacrum of a human being into space to test 
what humans can to see what humans can actually take. Uh, I mean, a part of the the, the risks are going to be uh, you know, certainly physical, but there's also going to be the emotional uh, ramifications of long term space travel, especially. So it makes sense that you would want your tow bore capable of feeling uh, these emotions as well. I suppose so. Who who am I to question? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, by the way, I think I should mention this happens a couple times throughout the movie when people are like, so this robot of yours, the professor will cut them off and insist that they call him Tobor. For if they do not, Tobor may become resentful. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. 
Uh, but so, okay, uh, the, the, everybody's impressed, obviously. But is Tobor ready for action? Well, not quite yet, because there, there are a couple last things they need to finish. One of them is the long-range transmitting device to control him with your psychic powers. Oh, and then Gilligan, he's like, hey, can we look inside Tobor and see his innards? And the professor says, I don't mind if Tobor doesn't. <laughs> and then there's actually, I thought, a, a rather good shot where they like flip open the shutters on Tobor's chest and you can see the machinery inside him. And then you're peering through Tobor, seeing between the slats, and you see the man in rimless glasses on the other side of Tobor peering inside. Oh, yeah, this is a great, great scene. And again, just shows the the love and attention that went into creating all the various gadgets and gizmos in this film. Yeah. Oh, and we mentioned, so Gadge has been, by the way, the kid, Gadge, has been listening in this whole time with a some kind of spying device that he dropped through a vent in the floor. And he's he's like, I got to see Tobor. I just got to. So all the, all the journalists leave. Uh, Oh, and keeping with the theme while the the reporters are leaving Harrison corners Gilligan. And he's, he's basically like, Hey, when you publish your article about this, I want to ask that you report only the facts, not a bunch of lies and wild speculation. And Gilligan says, he's like, no can do, uh, you know, you, I don't tell you how to do your job. Yeah, such a such a stark contrast to various pictures where the the journalists are portrayed as the as if not the heroes, at least in a more neutral light. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so meanwhile, of course, we get Gadge. He's going. To, he's got to see Tobor. So he goes down to the lab, gets up to some lab mischief, and he ends up activating and controlling Tobor. And whoops, he doesn't exactly know how to do it at first because he he accidentally drives Tobor up the stairs out of the lab into the house mm. that's not good tobor is not supposed to be up on the furniture uh but tobor is he's ro- ro- rolling all around he's knocking over lamps he punches a harp at one point mm-hmm. and causes a whole ruckus but then i think eventually gadge sort of gets the hang of the control device and then walks tobor back downstairs and puts him back in his tube and uh, at the end of this, after all the destruction, Janice is like, my son Gadge, he is bad, bad, bad. But the professor says, no, no, don't you see? He has an intuitive grasp of Tobor. Look how quickly he mastered Tobor. So we already see the uh, the seeds beginning of a, of, a, of a deep connection between Tobor and his friend, this child Gadge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, Harrison and Nordstrom figure out, wait a minute, there was somebody extra here. There was a spy because there were too many chairs in the room. And they they get upset about this, obviously. And but then Janice is like, "What's the big deal? Who are we guarding against?" And Harrison says, "Well, we built the basic emotional patterns for a constructive mission into Tobor. Just think what would happen if someone else, a potential enemy, built destructive patterns into a few thousand like him." I mean, in a way, this is rather brilliant. It's like Tobor is a machine, and his disposition is a reflection of the disposition of those around him. Uh, yes. So it's kind of like technology itself. Um, he, he's as much of a weapon as the as the wills of those in his presence. And perhaps this kind of comes back to why uh, a small boy has the strongest connection with Tobor, because his connection is pure. He, yes. He's, it's not this complex array of false emotions and false pretenses pretending to be angry or pretending to love like this is a young boy he feels all of these things with a with an absolute purity uh and that that impulse goes right into the the brain of 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 the robot here yes his innocence is a benediction on the soul of tobor yeah 
Uh, but anyway, so we got these spies, and uh, so we, we're going to follow the creepy man in rimless glasses. He drives off. He switches out his license plate, just like James Bond. <laughs> Uh, and he goes to rendezvous with his co-conspirators, which include a couple of kind of doughy guys, like this doughy auto mechanic who uh, looks sort of like a cross between the skipper from Gilligan's Island and Buddy Hackett. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they hang out at a place called the Last Chance Garage. So it is an auto garage that is the headquarters of the, the communist infiltration unit in the United States. Meanwhile, Harrison and Nordstrom keep working on Tobor. They're trying to perfect things like his manual dexterity and his long-range transmitter. Uh, oh, and one of the items on their list is, quote, reaction to space hazard. But in I, one scene I thought was very funny was the scene where they, they get Tobor to improve his manual dexterity by typing on a typewriter. Mm-hmm. And they, sh- like, it's impossible. They show his hands doing it. And his hands... They're like, he could not press an individual key. They are way too big. But somehow he's managing to type anyway. Uh, and, and he produces a kind of all work and no play makes Tobor a dull boy type sheet. It's just yep. a repeated line over and over in all caps that says Tobor is robot spelled backwards. <laughs> they also tried to train Tobor to fly a spaceship. Uh, so he's doing a pilot simulator program, dodging white hot meteorites. And this test proves too much for Tobor. It, it's too stressful and the, and it makes Tobor go berserk. And he starts roaming around trying to hurt everyone until Harrison disarms him by lowering his antenna. And you can tell Gadge feels very betrayed, but uh, they, they assure him, they say, easy Gadge, Tobor can't hurt us now. Uh, and the professor concludes that Tobor suffered what in humans we would call a nervous breakdown. But they say now that his circuits have cooled off, when Tobor wakes back up, he feels terrible remorse for his actions, and he goes to give Gadge a big hug. And we Aww. can see the bonds of friendship forming already. From this, the adults deduce that Tobor has concern for the young, and they say that he has mastered, quote, human love. <laughs> oh, and at some point in here, they also create a miniature controller for Tobor designed to look like a pen. I don't recall why they do this, but it proves pivotal in the in the climax. Yeah, it, it does become important later. All the uh, no gadget introduced in the film uh, fails to have payoff later on. Uh, but then later this night, the communist saboteurs attack the grandpa compound. Uh, how would you describe the sequence? This is a, a strange action sequence in the middle of the movie. Yeah, uh, this is another sequence where a lesser film would have just had them like cut through the fence or do something like that, even though it is a, an electrified fence. But no, they basically come with siege equipment that they've custom built <laughs> out of a uh, what it looks like maybe a tow truck and um, and some uh, some ladders and so forth like it looks it, it doesn't look cheap it looks like they really thought this out and whoever the the loving minds behind all the uh, the gadgets in this film happened to be they came up with something believable something that uh, no petty criminals were putting together no this is a crew with uh, international expertise and international yeah. funding They've got Grand the Wolf's head. It's like, uh, you know, they're, they're coming up with like a truck that's got a whole thing. Yeah. But, of course, they are thwarted by all kinds of high-tech traps and uh, gun. Like, I think Gadge runs out with a – Gadge is armed, by the way. This is a child with a gun. Uh, and he goes out with a gun and other people get guns. But also, I think they scare them off with 
sound effects from a yep. movie. They say like this from the sands of Iwo Jima. They're playing like gunfire sound effects and uh, the the spies get spooked and they run away back over the fence. By the way, the main heavy uh, on the bad guy side is played by an actor by the name of Henry Kolke, who lived 1911 through 1965. Uh, apparently a former professional wrestler, which totally makes mm. sense when you see him. He's a real like stocky plug of a guy. And I think it becomes very obvious later on uh, when the fight scenes start happening. Yeah, totally. Uh, and he has a great fight scene with Tobor. Yeah, it could, it, oh, I'll, I'll describe it when we get to it, but it's great. Okay, okay. So uh, back at the hideout, the uh, the spies are, are not happy. Uh, the main guy, the guy in the rimless glasses says, our employers will not tolerate any more failures on your part or mine. So they come up with a plan. They're going to kidnap Professor Nordstrom and Gadge. And the way they do this is by tricking them into attending a fake event at a science museum. <laughs> they like send out invitations. They're like, come to, come to this science thing. And when they show up, it's just spies there to kidnap them. I felt personally threatened by this as someone who has uh, responded to invites from science museums before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then the, and it's weird how... Mostly this movie is very tame. It's, you know, it's not getting really gritty, except in the weird part where they, uh, when they've got the professor and Gadge held hostage and they start threatening the professor by saying they're going to burn Gadge with a blowtorch. What? And we see the blowtorch and yes. And you totally buy the threat, uh, that is, uh, of these individuals. Like this is, it gets a little, little creepy and scary. And you're like, yeah, grandpa, I think you just need to tell them how the robot works because these guys are not playing around. Got to divulge the secret of Gadge. Uh, meanwhile, back at the house, they've got all these. Oh, they, so at first I thought they had. They're like all these generals at the house, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I thought what well, they called in the Joint Chiefs of Staff to like find <laughs> Gadge after he was kidnapped. But no, they're here for a demonstration of Tobor, not because of the kidnapping, but it just so happens now that they're here and uh, Harrison and everybody finds out about the kidnapping. Now they and their military police escorts can help out with the rescue efforts. So they they initiate a search. Meanwhile, the professor pulls a smart trick to summon help. So so what's his trick? Well, he claims that in order to divulge the secrets of Tobor, he needs both his hearing aid and his pencil. Mm. The pencil, as we established, this is a pen or pencil-shaped device that allows him to somehow control Tobor. I was a little um, foggy yeah, on exactly how this is working. Yeah, they're not super clear on that. But also his, quote, hearing aid is like a headset that is yeah. able to transmit his psychic, his his ESP to Tobor, I think. Yeah, it's like a psychic amplifier so that he can beam his thoughts directly into Tobor and control him. And I guess nobody on this crew of villains has seen a hearing aid or hearing apparatus before. So they're just like, yeah, this Magneto-looking X-Men gadget <laughs> is totally the sort of thing you put on your head to uh, to hear better. Okay. Yeah, Cerebro, yes. So this works. It summons Tobor. Tobor breaks free in front of all the generals. He walks Mm -hmm. right through a window. Everybody is uh, extremely alarmed by this. Tobor clatters out through the the front lawn. He walks through the gate. I think he, like, electrifies the gate with his hands, and then it falls over. He smacks a military police guard. Nice. And, man, things really start popping off here because Tobor gets into an army jeep and drives it. Yes. I can't tell you how many times we rewound the Tobor driving scenes. <laughs> this this is the highlight of the film. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Tobor is on on full rampage at, at this point, <laughs> and it's a delight to watch. Oh, it's so good. So Tobor's nearly there. You know, he's he's going for the rescue, but then uh oh, at the last minute, the spy figures out the game. He he realizes what's going on, and he takes the professor's pencil and he breaks it. And then we see Tobor. He's walking toward the place where where uh, uh, he's walking toward the garage, but then he just stops and he falls limp because the the control device is broken. And then they're threatening Gadge with the blowtorch, and it's like, what's going to happen now? Maybe only the power of love can revive Tobor. Mm-hmm. And then there's a scene where I don't know how to explain it other than that Gadge prays to Tobor. Yes, he prays to Tobor like again. He has this connection with the robot. His purity of thought, his his mind is unclouded like all the grown-up brains around him. So he alone, none but the pure of heart, can actually connect mind to mind with Tobor and reanimate him and bring him the rest of the way in for the, the, the victory and the rescue. And he does it. It works. Uh, a child's love brings Tobor back to, back to life. It reanimates Tobor's circuits, even without the amplification device. It's just pure love energy straight from the child's skull. And so then Tobor arrives on scene, and he is ready to fight, fight, fight. Now, the fight scene is interesting. Cause now, um, our, our main hero, human hero, shows up as well, right? For the yeah, fight. Harrison shows up and throws some punches, too. Yeah, yeah. and you... This is where you begin to see why, because, again, this robot costume looks amazing, and they did so much more with it than you would expect them to be able to do, but asking for a scene of fisticuffs with this thing, it really, you can tell they were asking too much. So they're like, okay, we got to bring our hero in for just some normal human-on-human combat, and then when it comes to making it look like Tobor can actually fight, well, they have to turn to Henry Kolke, a.k.a. Bomber Kolkovich, the former pro wrestler who's playing the main heavy. He gets the main fight scene with Tobor, and it's very, very evident that Tobor, the actor in the Tobor suit, is barely able to move, barely yes. able to sort of throw his limbs around. But Kolke, with his wrestling background, he knows how to bump. So he knows, he knows how to make every little, like, bare movement of Tobor look like it's really connecting and connecting with him and knocking him on his rump. So great job here by Kolke making, making the robot look strong. Fantastic. There's one part with a really brutal crotch to head strike on the Soviet buddy Hackett. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they go outside and it's Tobor versus uh, the, the spy in a car and Ooh, it's fantastic. And Tobor defeats the red menace. Now is this the 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 wonderful strongman cliche scene with, where he's picking up part of the car yes. and keeping the bad guy from driving off? I love that. Yeah, yeah. Or I think he at least he like lifts the hood off the car. I think. And oh yeah, he starts tearing up and, the engine too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tobor rips the hood off and he pulls out the spark plugs or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, so after all the all the bad guys have been defeated, we see Tobor. He picks up Gadge and he like carries him off into the sunset. They're going to be friends forever. It's it's very touching. Uh, but it's also an interesting contrast to the movie posters or many of the movie posters for Tobor the Great, which show Tobor carrying a beautiful woman, which of course is the standard monster or monster costume, gorilla costume trope of the day. Uh, yes. they just they, That's how you sold pictures, is uh, you want to make people think that a woman will be carried by your monster or robot at yep. some point. And so that's what they do on the poster. Yes, monster must always have an unconscious woman in his arms. Uh, but that, no, that's a complete lie. Never happens in the movie. Not even close. Yeah. 
Uh, so uh, with the enemies defeated, Toborn can now resume his function of being shot up in a rocket to die in space. That's right. He apparently boards a V2 and, uh, and via stock footage uh, takes off, goes right up into space. And we see we see Professor Grandpa and Gadge standing there looking up as the rocket ascends through the atmosphere. And then we, we zoom in on Gadge's face and Gadge says, goodbye, Tobor, and good luck. And that's a, it's a solid ending to what I thought was a really solid adventure film. I was, again, thinking of this as kind of a, a film version of an action serial from the day. I was prepared for any level of tedium here. Uh, but it moves right along. The, uh, the, the acting's pretty solid. The, the writing is, is, is far better than it needs to be. And all the gadgets look great. Yeah. And, you know, every time they're talking about Tobor, I just I couldn't get enough. Yeah. Tobor is great in this. Well done, Tobor. I take back what I said earlier. Now Tobor the Great makes complete sense. Now that we've talked it through. Yeah. Tobor the Great. Tobor the the Savior. Tobor the Ascendant. Tobor Magnus. Tobor Augustus. Tobor the Magnificent. (laughs) All right. Well, Joe, it's been great to have you back, uh, back in the weird house again. Uh, so glad you're able to, uh, to talk about Tobor the Great, uh, with me here and wonderful pick. Yeah, man. It's fun to be back. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and close this one out, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Were you familiar with Tobor the Great previously? Uh, do you have a history with Tobor the Great? Well, write in. We would love to hear from you. Or, or if you're exploring this movie for the first time, like, like we did, uh, we, we would also love to hear from you. Uh, like, again, there's a lot to discuss in this picture. Uh, far, far better than I think some have, uh, have, have given it credit for. So, uh, yeah, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Reminder that Weird House Cinema is uh, our Friday episode in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast with core episodes that publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. If you want to see all the films we've discussed in the show thus far and sometimes get a peek ahead into the future, go on over to letterboxd.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. That's a fun uh, movie website where folks chronicle the films they're, they've viewed or, or plan to view and uh, create various lists. Well, we have an account there called Weird House, and we have a list of all the films we've discussed, so you can check them out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. 
Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.